Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 52nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Allison Page, co-founder and chief product officer at Seven Rooms in New York City. Seven Rooms is an all-in-one reservation, seating, and guest management platform that is used by customers ranging from neighborhood restaurants to international hospitality groups. The company raised an $8 million Series A round of funding last December, led by Comcast Ventures, and they just announced an investment from Amazon's Alexa Fund to introduce in-service voice-enabled technology for the restaurant industry. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Allison's background, including the lessons she learned having a side hustle while working in investment banking, how the founding team spent their time learning the hospitality industry to discover the pain points that Seven Rooms would initially focus on, how the curiosity factor is helpful for people who are considering a career in product management, the trickle-down effect that has happened in terms of hiring across the company based on having a diverse leadership team, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, if you are not challenged in your current position, or maybe you're just ready for a change, check out the VentureFish job board where you'll find lots and lots of positions located in New York City that are specific to your industry. Go to VentureFish.com backslash jobs and you'll find career-defining opportunities from many companies like DigitalOcean, Facebook, UiPath, Twitter, T-Vision Insights, and of course, Seven Rooms. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Allison. Allie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I wanted to talk to you. Um, you know, I was excited because I saw so much great things that you've accomplished throughout your career in terms of entrepreneurship. So thanks so much for taking the time today. But I, I, I like to go way back. And you know, I think the formational years of how someone grew up is important. So where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? Yeah, so I grew up in a tiny town outside of New York City in the suburbs. It was called Rivervale, New Jersey. It was, you know, a, a town with one traffic light where, you know, we did it was before all this social media and everything on TV where we played outside barefoot in the streets. Um, and I played a ton of sports. I was constantly, you know, running from school to some sort of practice and soccer, softball, whatnot. And as far as what my parents did, they both worked in real estate. Um, So my father was a senior executive at a large uh, residential real estate company. And my mom as well worked in residential real estate. Aha. So that actually makes sense in terms of your educational studies. So you went to, you studied at Penn, uh, at Wharton, studying finance and real estate, correct? That's correct. I wouldn't say that it had an impact on me choosing the the career that I went into because um, I worked more in commercial real estate. But you know, maybe it did. Looking back, maybe a little bit. Okay. Um, but at the time, I didn't think that. Now, how about coming out of school? What were some of the first jobs? Yeah, sure. So studying finance at Penn kind of have two different career tracks. It was either consulting or investment banking, and you know, your senior year, you kind of go on all these interviews across all the big, big bulge bracket banks and all the consulting firms. Those were really the only two options. And I don't know if I was lazy at the time or I just didn't know any better, but I kind of just followed that path. It's what everyone else was doing. So I did all those interviews and I took an offer at an investment bank called Credit Suisse um, in their real estate investment banking division. And so that's kind of where I got my, my first start out of college. And, and how did, you know, working in the uh, investment banking industry, it's, it's obviously very challenging. There's a lot expected, uh, you know, long hours. So how is that experience like a foundation and, and what did it teach you initially? 
Yeah, that was a great foundation for, I think, any path that I would have taken following that. I think it would have been an excellent foundation. So, you know, there's a few things that I look back on the experience now. And at the time, it was really challenging. We were working extremely hard, really late hours. But to be so young and be surrounded by people that are so smart and they're so motivated, these are people that graduated from top schools. They probably could have had any job that they wanted. And I felt really thankful to be, to have been included in that group. So, you know, it, it definitely taught me first and foremost, how do you kick it into the next year when you have to, right? When that big deal is closing tomorrow and you need to stay up all night because that's what you have to do to get it done, you do it and everyone does it. And if you don't do it, there's a million kids that want your job and will take your job uh, if you give them the chance to, right? So I think, you know, personally, I was an athlete my whole life. Being able to hit that next gear is something that was really important in that role and it still is something that's really important in my, my day-to-day. Um, I would also say professionally, you learn so many things in that job. It's kind of like getting your ass kicked for a couple of years as, as an analyst at an investment bank gives you a great foundation to starting a company, working in a different industry. So things I hated at the time, like turning a pitch book a hundred times, right? Move the comma over, cross the T, you know, <laughs> change that word and, and re-PDF it and send it around. I, I hated that at the time. But, you know, like when we went out to raise capital or, you know, we're going to pitch a big customer, guess what? I was turning that, that deck a hundred times and I was <laughs> moving the comma and doing all, all the things. So I think at the time they seem so small and meaningless, but they really have made a difference in, especially, you know, my company, us appearing far more professional and prepared and we over-prepare. And a lot of times I think we seem like a much bigger company than we are because we have that skill set. Now, the other piece that I found uh, extraordinary about your background was the fact that in addition to this really uh, high pressure, very um, you know, high expectation job of lots of hours, you, you also had what we guess generally call now like a side hustle. You had your own startup on the side. So a tech company that you started at some point, was it shortly after college while you started at Credit Suisse or what was the time frame of actually getting into entrepreneurship and w- what was the idea? Sure. So another great thing about that, that first job I had after college was it was actually where I met one of my co-founders. And, you know, while the job was great, you know, you're picking up a great skill set professionally, there was also a lot of things missing, right? So having a passion for what you do, waking up in the morning and being excited to go to work and, you know, excited for, for what your, the challenges are for that day that was missing. And I think that we were frankly a little bored by what we were doing. So, you know, we were scheming in our cubicles um, (laughs) to try and figure out, you know, what's something that's more fun and, and more challenging and where we could be creative that we could work on on the side. And so my co-founder, Joel, he had an idea to start a business um, helping people secure reservations at really hard to access restaurants and nightclubs. Um, So, you know, we would come home from work at 1am, 2am, 3am and, you know, work a couple hours here and there. We also had to work on the weekends at our normal jobs. So trying to find time when we could 
to get something off the ground. And it was very, very challenging to work in investment banking and also try and have a side hustle. I don't recommend it, but <laughs> you could do it. I was, I'm happy I was young when I did it. But it set the tone, right? Like, so, I mean, obviously you're not afraid of hard work. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and you talk about being an athlete, which uh, I meant to ask. So which sports did you play growing up? So growing up, I played softball, soccer, basketball, um, you know, anything to keep me out of the house and busy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've understood that, you know, it takes a lot of hard work to excel in sports. And obviously that carried into your academic and professional life. Definitely. So that, but this company didn't quite work out. So what were some of the lessons learned from, uh, from, from this side company at first? Yeah. So the first one is that it's really hard to get something off the ground when you can't put your full focus into it. And it really was a side hobby. It, it wasn't serious. Um, even though, you know, we thought that maybe it could become serious at some point, but it's hard to move the needle when your attention is elsewhere. That's, you know, the basics. And the second one is that you really have to be solving a pain point. I think we missed that whole thing the first time around that, you know, we were, we were trying to solve something that is a problem for, you know, those of us that are making a great salary and working in an investment bank and want to go to the best restaurants. But, you know, the, the best restaurants don't have an issue getting customers to their door, right? Mm -hmm. So building a business around that doesn't really make sense. Right. So when we, we took a break after that, it, it completely failed the company. And, you know, we just focused on our, our finance careers. And then a couple of years later, we met, went back to the drawing board and we had a lot of fun doing that. And we wanted to do something again. So we said, if we're going to do it this time, we're really going to dig in and we're going to understand where the pain points are and we're going to build a business. You know, let's focus on one pain point and build a biz business around that and work towards validating that. Um, so I think, you know, for anyone starting a business, that is the best place to start. Like, is this actually solving problems for people? Um, and if it's not, then go back to the drawing board and, and figure something else out. And solving a problem that people generally want to pay for, right? So obviously you need to have a revenue model. Yes, revenue is great. <laughs> yes, without revenue, ugh, it's tough. But uh, so what was that, um, I guess, aha moment behind starting Seven Rooms where you felt like, okay, I think there's something here with some legs to actually take the leap of faith and like leave your career to, to start this company? Right. So I think it's hard to pinpoint a single aha moment because mm -hmm. there wasn't one, um, you know, when we did leave to start the company, you, you know, we, of course we were unsure of, you know, is this definitely going to work, but we did as much as we could to feel as comfortable as we could at the time. Right. So it was a combination of a lot of moments. So when we, we set out to, to start seven rooms, it was a lot of working at restaurant host stands. I'm sure we'll get into, you know, what we do, but it was a lot of working restaurant host stands, sitting in dark basements of restaurants and nightclubs and figuring out what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, could we solve problems for them? So it was a lot of like little moments combined that led up to us feeling comfortable to go full time on it. Okay. So the, the, you just hit an interesting point. Um, so this was basically market research that you were doing. So, so how did you actually convince a, you know, restaurant or a hospitality, like, like a hotel to let you kind of look under the hood of their problems? Like, like how are you able to actually like spend time doing that and, you know, 
Yeah. So I think at first it was using a lot of personal connections that we had, you know, like I even found Penn alumni that own restaurants and nightclubs that I was just like, Hey, and I'm, I'm an alumni. I'm trying to work on a startup in, in the space, wondering if I could come spend some time with your team. I won't bother anyone. I'll just be a fly on the wall. And people are really receptive to it. And I think the hospitality industry in general you know, they're an industry that has been really left behind in terms of of tech, that they get excited hearing of new companies coming into the space, new entrepreneurs with ideas. And, you know, it's a hospitality business. They're hospitable, right? So they want to, you know, welcome you with open arms. And I'm not saying all of our early experiences were like that, but I think we were pretty lucky to find people that were open to us doing our research and asking questions and, and trying to figure this out. So through that, you identified a couple key areas where you're like, this could be, uh, you know, a, a huge benefit for for these companies in terms of their how they operate their business. Yep. So yeah, to to touch on that, um, the the biggest area of opportunity that we identified was helping restaurants and you know any sort of hospitality operator better understand who their guest is. And if you understand who your guest is, you can provide a better guest experience. So. Through our research, what we had found out was this is the hospitality industry. It is an industry based on people, right? And understanding who people are um, and being able to deliver a personalized experience. And they were operating on no data, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to give you an example, you you own two restaurants and they're across the street from each other. You have a guest that is a regular at the first restaurant, they've been there 500 times, that guest walks across the street to your other property and they're a complete stranger. Mm -hmm. They're a John Doe, right? And from on a personal level, you know, we would go to restaurants all the time where they remembered us. And we love that feeling of walking in and saying hi to the waiter or waitress or the, the host, you know, saying, you know, hey, Allie, good to see you again. And as soon as that's those staff members left the restaurant, you're a nobody walking into your favorite place again, right? So these businesses were relying on people to execute this type of personalized service. So we're like, okay, that's a problem, right? Because there's a lot of turnover in the industry. Why is it that, you know, I've been here a hundred times and I come back and the GM is gone and all of a sudden I'm a nobody at this restaurant. Um, So we saw the data piece as a huge opportunity in the industry. And we decided that that's what we were going to go after. In seven rooms, is there like how'd you come up with the the name of the company? Yeah, I get asked that all the time. Um, so <laughs> the seven rooms. There's a theory by Graydon Carter. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a purveyor of you know fine dining, and he's owned some of the most popular restaurants in New York. He was editor in chief of Vanity Fair, and he had this theory called the seven rooms theory, and it says that in New York City, there's seven interconnected rooms and each room is more exclusive than the one before it. So just when you're in your, that seventh room, you know, you, you think you've made it, but then there's people going through this little trap door into a room that you've yet to discover. Mm. So, you know, it, we didn't love the name just, you know, for the aspect of exclusivity at all. It was more, you know, helping operators figure out who's in which room, right? Who are your seventh room guests? Who are your sixth room guests? And being able to tailor service according to, to those rooms. 
Well, that's a perfect segue. So, you know, fast forward to today, where does your company focus and the problems you're solving? Yeah. So at a high level, Seven Rooms is a reservation seating and guest management platform for hospitality operators. So, you know, in the simplest form, what we're trying to do is help hospitality operators provide a better guest experience. And we do that by providing an entire suite of operational tools, as well as giving them, you know, tons and tons of guest data to be able to personalize the experience. Is there a good example of a a customer that leverages your platform and the success they've had? Yeah. So today, you know, we're in thousands of properties. We operate in over a hundred cities, key markets like New York, London, Dubai, LA, et cetera. And, you know, we work with anything from these small independent Michelin star restaurants to large multi-concept hotel or entertainment companies. So some example clients would be, you know, Jumeirah Hotel Group. We, we help them operate over 100 restaurants uh, today. And so the big benefit that they see is that data across their entire restaurant group. So if you're visiting one of their hotels in Dubai and then you visit another property, perhaps another city, they know everything about you that you've done in their food and beverage outlets. Um, they also use our tools for their call center so that their call center reps can find reservation availability across all of their outlets in a single search. Um, and they also use some of our integrations to be able to pull, um, you know, customer data out of the point of sale, for instance, to create that really rich guest profile and help them understand the guests. And what's the consumer experience like? I know that's not your end customer, but their end customer is the, you know, the, the patron that's hopefully attending their or making reservations or uh, eating at their fine establishments often. So what, what are the benefits that the consumers generally see? Right. So we provide a, you know, branded white label widget to all of our restaurants so that you can book directly on the restaurant's website. And then we help the restaurant plug into everywhere that their guests are already booking reservations. So if you're booking on Google or on Instagram or on Facebook, you can have that branded experience with the restaurant. So, you know, you wouldn't see the seven rooms brand anywhere. You're, you know, you wouldn't be a seven rooms user. Um, But one of the things that we do that's pretty special is we allow diners to contribute to their own profiles. So when you're checking out at one of our restaurants, you can put in, if you have any allergies, you can put in, if you have, if you're celebrating a special occasion, you can connect to social media so that we can give the restaurant your photo so they can recognize you when you walk in the door. So, you know, we see that as being a big benefit to the restaurant as well, that they don't have to do all the work to learn something about you. You can actually help them learn something about you yourself. Now, in addition to being a co-founder of the company, your chief product officer, was that kind of the role that you just gravitated towards of, you know, running product and thinking about the roadmap, the vision, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always have had a very creative background. And I think, you know, when you're starting a company, we had three co-founders and it was like, all right, we got to figure out how to divide this up. Uh, So, so naturally that, that was a perfect fit for me. And I think that it's just my personality. I'm an obsessed kind of person. I'm obsessed with the problem. I'm obsessed with the industry, you know, going to events, reading every article, studying every company in the space, meeting with operators every single day to figure out, you know, what their challenges are. That's something that gives me an incredible high. Um, And, 
So, you know, I think that's, that hasn't changed since the day we started the company. It's still what I do every single day. What lessons learned or advice would you give to other folks, whether if they're founding their own company or just interested in, uh, you know, product management in general, if you don't have a background in computer science or design, like you had, like no one graduates with a degree in product management, but, um, you know, how did you, you know, uh, you know, be able to interface or manage engineering teams or designers effectively? Yeah. So I didn't know anything about tech or product or even the hospitality industry when we started this company, literally nothing. Um, so, you know, I like to say that like I built the company by Googling because it was a lot of Googling. Um, and I think that it's, it's fine. You don't need a background in these things to do it, but I, I think that you do need a certain level of curiosity and you have to be willing to, Oh, well, how, how does another, how do they do this in another industry? How does this company do it? Um, just learning. I, you know, I learned Photoshop by Googling how to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that if you're obsessed with the problem, you can, you can be good at product management, right? Mm -hmm. If you're somewhat intelligent, you're obsessed with the the problem and obsessed with the customer, you'll figure it out. Honestly, like the, the, thank God for resources like Google and like YouTube, whether if it's, um, work related as in editing this podcast or editing video uh, or at home. Um, I'm not really handy at home, but right. um, I will look up on YouTube because there's definitely someone that has solved that problem has a video shockingly for every problem in your house. <laughs> and I'll look at it and be like, I can actually, I can do that. I don't need to call a plumber. I can do that. <laughs> so. It's insane. The resources that we have available to us now, I couldn't imagine doing this 10 years ago. We're, we're so lucky. It's, it's so much easier today um, to start yeah. a company it really than is. it was before. Yeah. It's totally, totally out of control, but thank God. Um, now, the other really impressive thing about Seven Rooms is, uh, you know, I, I encourage everyone to go look at your team page where the, you show your leadership team, because what you're going to notice is a very different experience the whole leadership team is women except the two male co-founders. Um, talk about how, like, that's just a, you know, we need more women in leadership roles in, in the tech scene. Um, uh, so I, I just would love to learn uh, your experience of building out the leadership team at seven rooms. Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot because I think people assume that because there's a female founder, I, you know, laid down the hammer and I said, our leadership team is going to be all female and our company is going to be 50% female, but that's not really how it happened at all. Um, I think in our recruiting and hiring process, we do an amazing job at casting a really wide net and making sure that we're getting applicants from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, not just gender or, or race or age or anything like that. So just to give an example, I was recruiting for a really senior product role and all the resumes I was getting from our headhunter were male. And so, you know, if those are the best candidates that's out there, fine, I'll take a look at all the resumes, but I wanted to know why there's no female resumes in the pool. Um, because I just want to make sure there's, there's, if, if they're not the right fit for the job, great. But I want to know that I have that option available to me and I have that resume on my desk, Right. So in building out the the leadership team specifically, 
it really is the best fit for the role and the best fit for the company. And those people that we brought on were proven leaders. Um, you know, some of them in the same industry at different companies, they had track records that they've done this before. And the fact that they were female is, it, it doesn't, it didn't even matter. You know what I mean? It was like, this was the best person for the job and that's why we're going to hire them. So when we look at hiring, it's not just best for the job, but also best fit for the company and our culture and our team. Um, so yeah, it's just something that, that organically happened. And I think that when you do put women in leadership positions, that'll also affect hiring on the rest of the company, right? Because if you see only male leaders at the top, who are they more likely to bring in? You know, male coworkers that they've had before or male friends that are in their network that are looking for a job. So I think that it, it has had an instrumental trickle-down effect to our overall ratio of our company. I think we're probably 50% male, 50% female, which is rare in tech and has been amazing. And, it, and it's one of the reasons that I love working here. So kind of like what I took away from what you said is you advise the recruiting firm to go the extra mile, right? Uh, to, to identify a diverse pool of candidates, regardless of gender or race. That Let's look at the best pool of candidates and obviously hire the right person for the yeah. job purely. Uh, but, you know, you're seeing a very you know, standard set of resumes of, of males or, so it just sounds like you are advising and coaching the, the recruitment firm, like, Hey, let's open up the pool and let, let's go the extra mile work harder. Yeah. I think the top of the funnel is a lot of where the challenge is and where the issue is mm-hmm. because some companies don't even realize that they're doing that, that, right. you know, it, you know, you have one hiring manager for each role, but you know, if you take a step back and look at the entire organization, who are, where are we advertising this job? Like what are the networks that we're going after to make sure everyone knows that this job is available, right? Are we just reaching out to our personal networks or places that we've worked before that, that narrows down the pool a lot. Right. So I think that making sure you have diversity in the types of resume will have a huge impact on making sure your company also has diversity. Now you've, uh, how, how large is the team now? Um, I think we're between 80 and 85 people now. And obviously you've built this company from scratch in terms of hiring. Um, how do you evaluate talent to ultimately make that decision if that person's going to be a, a good fit for your company and, and the role at hand? Yeah, so it's it's two things. It's can they get the job done and are they a good fit for our team, right? So in terms of being a good fit for our team, it's all about is this person proactive? Are they going to roll up their sleeves and figure out, you know, how to get this job done, or even like, what is the job that needs to be done? You know, we don't typically look for people that need a very detailed job description of what they're going to be doing day to day, because that's not life at a startup. It's definitely not life here. Right. Um, So someone that can be flexible, that can be, you know, nimble, can work with little resources that is passionate about what we're building here um, and willing to go the extra mile. I think that those are all qualities of people that work here. Um, and then in terms of fit for the role, you know, can we believe that this person is going to get the job done, you know, without us having to hold their hands or micromanage or spell out exactly how to get from A to B. So I think those are probably the most important qualities that we look for here. What about the fundraising process? Um, 
you know, there, there was a lot of discussion of the Series A funding crunch, yet seven rooms, obviously, you know, has raised capital. Um, what's that process been like from the early stages of you have this concept idea to, you know, obviously got to pay bills to the point where you, you know, raise a, a Series A successfully? Yeah, I think um, so. We we raised a Series A in December of last year, and that was really our first institutional raise. Prior prior to that, we had to raise smaller rounds from some private individuals and some private private investors. And so, going through an institutional fundraise was definitely a huge learning lesson for us. It you know it, it taught us ways to look at our business that perhaps we weren't looking at it before. So we got asked a lot of questions that, you know, if we were just sitting in the office together, we wouldn't have come up with, right? So to give you an example, we, we, you know, after you have so many meetings, you think you've gotten all the questions, but I assure you, there's always more <laughs> questions that you don't know the answer to initially. Um, but one of the questions that really stuck with me from a VC um, out in San Francisco, they said, you know, if we, if we replicated your exact team, And, you know, so they're just as smart as you, they're, you know, same size as you, we gave them a hundred million dollars. They built your exact platform, replicated it to the T, every feature you had, right? (laughs) How, how do you win against them? Right? What a great question. And it's, it's a question that we still ask ourselves all the time. And we love that question. That's a great question. Yeah. So it just like forced us to think about things in a different way. Um, to look at the numbers in a different way, to look at different strategic paths that we could take. Um, so I, I, it was a tough process and it, it almost was like having another full-time job on top of your full-time job, but I'm really grateful for the things that we've learned and, you know, and even operating the day-to-day business, a lot of, um, you know, what we had to put together in the due diligence process, for instance, are things that we still use every day. There's still, um, documents and and uh, metrics that we review on a daily, weekly basis that you know we we probably wouldn't have been as buttoned up had we not gone through that. So it sounds like you know not only was it a benefit of raising capital for the company, but it was good, almost like company hygiene of you know focus and making sure you're doing stuff that matters and. Yeah, it's like we have to be grownups now. This has to, you know, we have to be a real business now. (laughs) And what about other uh, lessons learned, advice you'd want to pass along to other entrepreneurs, you know, taking a company from concept to, you know, the stage right now? Um, I think the first big lesson is probably everything takes twice as long and costs twice as much. (laughs) And in reality, it might be three or four times as long or three or four times as much. So, you know, whatever you think it's going to be, double it, triple it, quadruple it. Um, because I think that we're all, you know, especially when we start out, we're, you know, super passionate about it and we think it's going to be this unicorn and, you know, you're going to have a hundred customers the day you launch, but in reality, that's actually very rare. Well, cause um, you read on TechCrunch and it's like every company is just like growing their user base by, you know, millions of users and right. yep. you know, billion dollar valuations. There's unicorns minted every day. So you kind of, as a founder, get you know caught up sometimes in that. Yeah, but also I think a lot of the, the companies that we think of, of as unicorns, like if you actually read the stories behind them, mm-hmm. it's not it's not an overnight success. It looks like it in yep. you know, the media and whatnot, but you know, read the story behind Airbnb or behind Uber mm-hmm. or behind and Slack. You know, Slack was a gaming company. Yeah, I mean, they all started <laughs> they in, in the garage and having the same problems that that the rest of us are having. So yep. 
So true. That's why I love doing this podcast because it makes it real that it's not just an overnight success story. Yeah. There's so much going on in the New York tech ecosystem. Um, so I, I love to ask the question, you know, what, what, what company or companies are, are you excited about that, you know, you're kind of keeping tabs on? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously new stuff popping up every day. Um, and I'm very excited by female entrepreneurs, obviously. Um, so like company I'd love to tell you about is actually not a tech company, but, um, it's a company that was started by one of my friends called dress weights. Um, and it's a really cool product for, for females. They, you pin a weight at the bottom of your dress. So it doesn't blow up when you're walking over the subway or if you're, you know, a bridesmaid in a wedding and it's a windy day in Chicago, it's a a windy day fashion fix. Um, so, you know, she's, she's one of my best friends and it's been really cool to see her have the same passion and excitement that I have for my business in her, in her day to day. Um, so I think she almost understands, she almost understands me better by starting her own business. And does she have a, an actual product in the market? Is it something? Yeah, that can it's on dressstrong.com, your windy day fashion fix. Very cool. Sounds like a great product for, for Shark Tank, like ABC Shark Tank. I, I've said that to her a million times. <laughs> and I think she should go on Shark, Shark Tank. If you're listening, dressstrong.com. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so when you were at Warden, um, you know, like investment banking was kind of the path for a lot of the students there. But there's a, there's a real emergence of entrepreneurship at Wharton these days, isn't there? Yeah. And I mean, it did not exist when I was there. No one was trying to start tech companies or no one was even applying to tech companies. It, it wasn't a thing at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now I have Wharton kids hitting me up all the time on LinkedIn <laughs> and, and whatnot, trying to get into tech, trying to get a job here. Um, which I never could have imagined that even five years ago, um, that actually happening. So it's really cool to see the the shift and I think it's going to have a big impact on things like diversity at companies, um, and making sure, you know, we are getting a wider range of applicants because now it's not just people that were in engineering looking for these jobs. It's everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, I assume you're in uh, growth mode, still hiring, correct? Yes. If anyone listening is looking for a job, we are hiring. Please go to sevenrooms.com slash careers. Um, and we're hiring across sales, engineering, um, customer success, all sorts of roles. Perfect. Well, Allie, thanks so much for taking the time for you know, sharing all these great stories, lessons learned, and just you know, taking us down this journey. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.